All right. So last Monday evening, I was in Joanna's kitchen and we were talking about origin stories. Now, I wasn't the only one joining Joe and Mathen um, there that evening. We were gathering our fall community group that we've been calling Divine Creativity. And Joe was bringing us into our evening together, inviting us into our first creative exercise. We had just been listening to some stories from some indigenous storytellers um, because it was Monday, Indigenous Peoples Day. And we'd begun our time by grounding ourselves in native voices, telling their stories, listening to some YouTube videos of folks sharing their origins, their creation narratives that told their people who they were and how they'd come to be. And receiving that grounding, Joe invited us to gather around the table and take a bit of modeling clay. And in just a few minutes, with the timer going, to sculpt something from something, form something that represented to us our own origin story, our family history, something that spoke in some way of who we are and how we came to be. It was literally, here's some clay, form your story, go. You have three minutes, right? And as I rolled the soft clay through my fingers, I found myself surprised at what shape my hands wanted to form. I, I pulled together the yellow clay. I, I put down the red and the blue and grabbed a little more yellow and I let this shape emerge. It was kind of like an hourglass kind of shape. Two arcs joined together. And then I added this like long rectangle at the end and I pulled a couple bits of black modeling clay and I rolled them finely between my hands until what had started as little balls like one became a thin black strip and I laid it down the length of the rectangle and I did the same thing again and I made another long black strip laying it alongside the first and then I took one small ball of black and I squished it down to make kind of a pancake. I laid it in the center of the arced part of my shape, a circle at the end of these long strips and when Joanna spoke time <coughs> in my hands, I had something that looked vaguely like a guitar. But it wasn't just any guitar, which is why I found myself surprised. The instrument I had crafted as a symbol of my origins was an instrument I rarely think about. I haven't seen it or heard it in many decades. And yet, when asked to represent what formed me, this is like the first thing that came to mind. It was my father's guitar. Now my dad doesn't consider himself a musician. He's a lawyer, he would say, not an artist. There's only one season of my life that I have any recollection of my father playing an instrument at all. And my memories of that season are fuzzy at best. You see, it was only in the very earliest years of my life, probably ages one to five, that my dad actually played the guitar. He learned to play in college, I think, and still kept the habit up occasionally when I'd come around, but not long after that. It was the late 70s when I was born, and in those years, dad, alongside probably many people, strummed folk music. So Peter, Paul, and Mary, and John Denver, this was the soundtrack of my earliest memories. Um, and if I think deeply 
if I allow myself, a part of me can still hear his baritone voice singing Puff the Magic Dragon or Leaving on a Jet Plane. And I can hear my own young toddler voice singing along. Well, before last Monday night, if you'd asked me where I came from, how I came to be who I am today, I doubt I would have mentioned dad's guitar. It didn't feel significant enough to me to like make my resume or the bio on the website. And yet in that moment, in that exercise, a part of my consciousness needed to name that this was a formative part of my identity. My dad singing folk songs to me as a young child was one experience of many, one seed, like I talked about with the kids, planted in my young life among a number of different seeds that took root. That seed germinated, it sprouted roots in my spirit, it grew and developed and matured into something different from what had come before, but also true to that as well as to who I am. So decades after my father put down the guitar, I still play it. Decades after he stopped singing those tunes, I still write my own. And they're not Puff the Magic Dragon, but you know, they're not totally different either. So my identity as a singer, as a musician, as a creative, it's been evolving for decades. I found myself thinking about this theme of evolving a lot lately, particularly in this season of, of coming back to the work of Haven after my summer sabbatical. Some of you might remember that early after I returned, I shared that I felt like if God had you know, named anything to me during the sabbatical for Haven, it was that this community the community that was carrying things forward during my time of rest, those who are here today, those who are not, those who are on Zoom, this whole collective is the place of revelation. This is the place the divine is gonna speak. It's not my job as a pastor to like go up the mountaintop and receive the word of the Lord for everyone. Rather, I sensed my job during the sabbatical was to rest and recover so I could return and listen to all of you and to hear where you sense God is speaking and to partner with you and then in, in trying to follow that. So that's what I came back eager to do, to listen to individuals and groups within Haven, whatever spaces I found myself in and try to discern what's the divine been saying here? And so a handful of weeks ago, Jeannie followed up with me and she kind of put me on the spot and asked me if I had a sense of the overarching message and all these listening conversations. And at first I felt a bit hard pressed to summarize any common theme. My conversations had each had their own flavor to them. So there were conversations with some of our leaders about ways they'd experienced community during the sabbatical or learn new things about their way, their capacity to work as a team, to contribute um, to their own voices. There were conversations with total newcomers who were discovering Haven for the first time, hopeful to explore the role this community might play in their journey. And there were folks who were simply acknowledging that their relationship to spiritual engagement has shifted in some way and the practices and experiences that used to feel important to their spiritual life might no longer have the same hold. So like, what's the common theme? 
And Jeannie's prompting stirred in me. And as I looked at each of the conversations I was having and found myself praying for discernment, the word that came to mind was evolving. As I thought about that word more, some understanding clicked into place. Like every voice I had listened to shared in their own way a desire to evolve. All of us, I sensed, in some way are in a journey of becoming. We recognize we've not arrived. There is a process calling us forward to live into whatever is the next phase of our becoming. That might mean personal evolution in regards to how we think about our connection to God, our connection to others, how we express our spirituality. What kind of practices do we find meaningful? And I also sense there's a corporate process of evolution we're experiencing. Perhaps in this season, Haven's moving into a next phase of life as, as community, where we're becoming something potentially not quite what this is, but something next, right? What are we becoming individually and collectively that might look different than what it's been before? But it's also deeply connected to where we've come from. So like my early moments with my dad's guitar, of course, each of us has an origin story. We each have things that have been planted and matured in us over time. And those things look different, likely, than they used to. And that's true of us as a collective. While we as a community are relatively young in the grand scheme of things, right? Our story didn't really begin even eight years ago when I, my family moved to Berkeley and we had that first ga little gathering in my living room. Haven's existence is like a newer iteration of a longer process that's much bigger than us, of things growing and changing. So we're an example of how sometimes new things are born so evolution can take place. But our, evolu our existence isn't just to further the evolution of church or spiritual community by having been born. We need to keep becoming. We need to keep developing. We need to continue to evolve. So today, I wanna kick off a new series of conversations we're gonna be having in the months to come about what it might mean for us to embrace like this process of personal and collective evolution. I'm calling the series Community Evolving, and I hope in the weeks to come, it might be an opportunity to consider together what is this evolutionary process we're in? What are we evolving into? How are we evolving as individuals and as community? And what does it mean for those things to be connected to each other? What might constrain the ways we evolve? And what might it mean for us to be liberated from potential constraints and open to new possibilities? And of course, I think most critically, how might God be working through this evolutionary process? How might we be like that clay that became a guitar, evolving in the hands of a creator in ways that help us become more reflective of the divine nature and more connected to God's redemptive purposes in our world. Now, I would argue that spiritual evolution is not a new thing. It's actually been how faith has worked from the very beginning. But of course, we must acknowledge that there are those in the Christian tradition, as well as from other faith traditions, who would hold that our myths or origin stories that we tell about where we have come from 
um, and how the cosmos came into being might force us to believe that evolution is not the way life works, that there are Christians who deny what science would tell us and ascribe to a literal six-day creation. And for them, the Bible perhaps has nothing to say about evolution at all. It's actually a tool to refute it. But I just don't see our sacred texts or our traditions that way, and I'm guessing you don't either. So anyone who's heard me teach the Bible for any length of time has hopefully picked up that my approach is rooted in the understanding that the Bible itself is the result of an evolutionary process. The Bible didn't just like drop out of heaven, a leather bound book. It's a library of texts that evolved over centuries, if not millennia. Its oldest stories have their origins in ancient oral traditions, which were cultivated for centuries before ever even being written down. And over time, once these things were written, they were copied, they were recopied, they were lost, they were found, they were considered, they were reconsidered. Texts were added, texts were taken away. Many Christians are surprised to know it wasn't until the beginning of the fourth century, okay, like <laughs> hundreds of years after Jesus, that church leaders actually landed definitively on which of the many gospels, letters, and other texts that were circulating in the ancient church would be included in what we have come to know as the canon of the Bible. It took hundreds of years even to get to that. So even after this set of texts was solidified, our way of hearing, reading, understanding. I mean, the printing press itself meant people actually could read it for the first time. And that was hundreds of years after the canon, right? And so all of these things have over time been shifting. They've evolved. And when I look at our sacred texts and the stories they tell, there I see evolution in process too. Evolution in our theology. I see a progression in the Bible of ideas and understandings at the beginning in our most oldest ancient stories, this view of God that's depicted in many of those stories is tribalistic and violent. And then we move to the God of the prophets, the God who cares about justice and stands with the oppressed. And then we move to the God embodied in Jesus who seems to crystallize everything we need to understand about the divine through embodied self-sacrifice, through the opposite of violence, through self-sacrificial love. And from there, we see the spirit go beyond any one people group, beyond tribalism, and blow where it will, cultivating diverse multicultural expressions of sacred community. The story itself evolves. One character we see evolve in our sacred texts is the person we've come to know as the Apostle Paul. When we first meet the Pharisee named Saul, he's a black and white thinker. He fervently believes he has all the right answers. He's genuine, totally genuine, I believe, in his commitment to God. But he's also like super confident in his own understanding. And that confidence like fuels this passion that's ultimately pretty destructive. So he believes it's his job to squash the heretics. And when we first meet him in Acts, Saul is the one overseeing the stoning of, the fo of a follower of Jesus named Stephen. Saul believes 
Stoning this man is what needs to happen to remain faithful to his faith. Of course, on the road to Damascus, a major shift takes place. Saul encounters a vision of the risen Jesus who calls him out for persecuting Jesus himself as he persecutes the followers of Jesus. And Saul begins to see, see differently. He begins to understand differently. He begins to evolve. He moves from Saul to Paul. One of the most famous passages Paul has ever writ has written and that you know gets recited the most um, is often read at weddings. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 13, I think, is a bit of a cliche in that context. And I don't think it's necessarily the most helpful to be identified within that context because I don't think Paul was actually talking about marriage since he himself never got married. The passage, I think, works better to demonstrate how this person who thought defending the purity of faith, the purity of theology, was what it was all about. How he moved to be rooted in something different, something deeper. He was anchored in a different place. His priorities shifted. So let's look at this familiar passage and see if you can notice the movement. I'll start by reading uh, just from the top of 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clashing cymbal. And if I have prophecy and know all mysteries and know all knowledge and I have all faith so I can remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away everything I own and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I receive no benefit. So here I hear Paul extolling these things that I think he once prioritized. He once understood to be like part and parcel with being an exceptional man, an exceptional follower of God. And so he seems to point to these markers that I think often, if we're honest, we often, a lot of us probably use to evaluate our standing, our place in the world. Can we say the right thing? Can we communicate powerfully? I think a lot of us would like to be able to do that, right? We value that. Can we have deep spiritual insight? Can we, can we speak the truths like a prophet? Whether that's in the spiritual context or in some other context, can we say the meaningful thing that's really going to land, right? Can we believe so fervently we might make the miraculous happen? If I pray hard enough, if I do the things enough, could we see the supernatural? That would be amazing. Or could I live so sacrificially it proves my steadfastness? No one's going to question when I'm on the picket line, I'm at the protest, wherever I am, I am in. Right? I am in. Yet Paul recognizes that none of these actions, while each of them may have their benefit, none of them are really meaningful if they're not grounded in love. Each of these things that might have been part of his life, it, it, it wasn't enough if it wasn't grounded in love. So he goes on to describe what that love looks like next. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not envious. Love does not brag. It is not puffed up. It's not rude. It's not self-serving. 
It's not easily angered or resentful. It's not glad about injustice, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. As I think of Saul evolving into Paul, and I read those words, I can't help but wonder if in part they're a bit of a confession. Love is kind, not envious, <laughs> which I have been. Love isn't puffed up like I have been. Love isn't easily angered. Uh, I can tell you something about anger. Maybe if we're honest, we can resonate with Paul's confessions. I mean, how many of us know what it means to be envious? Maybe we're not proud of it, but we've been there. How many of us, if we're honest, have a bit of an anger problem sometimes? How many of us, if we're honest, have seen our relationships pay the cost of our envy, of our anger? Perhaps Paul is able to describe this agape, the Greek word he's using for love this way, because for him, this is not an abstract sentiment. He's had to face, through his own evolutionary process, the ways in which, though he thought he loved God and loved others, just like the commandments would have stated, that he was spending his life trying to pursue, his way of loving fell short. Too often it was rude and self-serving and complicit with injustice. And yet until he was confronted by the living Jesus with the harm he had caused, and he allowed himself to hear it and to be changed by the information, he could not do differently. But now Paul has been humbled. He's absorbed what Jesus was saying on that road to Damascus. He understands he has fallen short, and so he can encourage his readers, like him, to do better. To love in a way that rejoices in the truth, that endures all things, that never ends. And finally, he arrives here. But if there are prophecies, they will be set aside. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be set aside. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when what is perfect comes, the partial will be set aside. When I was a child, I talked like, when I became an adult, I set aside childish ways. For now we see in a mirror indirectly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So this is the part of the chapter that I think is often cut out. It's not read in the wedding sermon as much, but to me, it's perhaps the climax because this is where Paul is naming most definitively, we are all in process. We are all in process. He has learned. He has not arrived. I'm not sure Saul could have said that, right? I think Saul thought he was there, wherever there is supposed to be. But Paul holds his understanding with a kind of humility that was not there before. He recognizes that his knowledge, as robust as it is, 
is hugely limited and it's far from the end destination. So Paul points to how he has matured since childhood and he uses this as an example of how we are in a continual process of maturing in our understanding and our faith. And I don't think Paul, to be clear, is denigrating in any way the faith of children. In fact, Jesus himself had held up the child, right, as an example of faith, dependence on the divine, trust that all of us would do well to model, just like Junia as a five-year-old speaking the truth of God as a they to me, right? But I do think Paul's acknowledging it is healthy to grow. We are meant to develop. We are not to live in childhood forever, though we would do well to bring the best deposits of childhood forward into what comes next to turn Peter, Paul, and Mary into worship, right? But healthy things grow. Healthy things develop. Healthy organisms grow, carrying forward what they need for the season to come. Think of the squirrels harvesting their nuts for the winter or the tree storing its nutrients. Healthy things grow, allowing themselves to be transformed. Growth includes change. And at times, that change means leaving behind what's no longer serving. What has served for the past season may not serve for the next, like the butterfly emerging from its chrysalis, no longer a caterpillar. Healthy things grow. Healthy faith grows. So in these last sentences in the passage, Paul holds out this hope that at some future point, we will experience some, what he calls, you know, perfection, some sort of fullness of knowledge, perhaps full union with the divine. Now, I don't know exactly what he expected, when he expected that moment of clarity would come, and I don't know if I think about it the same way that Paul did, but in his voice, I hear this hope that at some point, some cosmic veil will drop away and he will see the divine fully face to face. But he knew, however we think about that, he wasn't there. And we're not there. And I'm pretty sure we won't be there tomorrow. Probably not next year. And I don't know about a decade or honestly, a, the next century. But in the meantime, we are in this process of becoming, growing as we seek to hold on to what is core and essential, like Paul describes, holding on to faith, hope, and love, and to let go of what no longer serves, because healthy things grow. Now, friends, I want to be clear about what I mean and what I don't mean when we talk about growth in our community. And you're growing too, Biscuit. Yes, you are. <laughs> in our community, part of our evolution has included recognizing the impact of social structures and frameworks in our world that have distorted our view of God and one another. Frameworks that we've named in this community as our contemporary version of idols, right? So frameworks, idols like capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy these have conspired together at times to give us, I would say, a model of growth that is intended to ultimately serve the idols. So growth becomes simply a numbers game. Likes on your social media post, clicks on the website, what's your level of engagement, 
first spiritual community. Growth often means how many butts are in the seats, right? How many dollars are in the bank? But is that the kind of growth that's the best measure of health? Is that what we mean when we think about being a community of faith and saying healthy things grow? Don't get me wrong, I do believe there is a place to acknowledge that increased engagement can be a sign of health, okay? I'm not trying to say it's not at all. I think that numerical and financial growth can reflect that there's a real felt need that's being met as people are finding the spaces that bring life to them in transformative, redemptive ways. We throw a party, we want to know that people want to come, right? And then when people come, that's a good sign it's a good party, right? And so there's something to that. And when folks find that space that's like, oh, this is like the manna in the wilderness. This is what I need. Um, they may want to give of themselves to those spaces and tell others who are going to benefit from those spaces. And so every time we have a season where new folk find the Haven community and we sense their, you know, their enthusiasm to experience some belonging here, it's energizing, it's life-giving because each person brings with them fresh insight and vitality that becomes part of our evolving and helps inform what we're going to become. And so I do think that's a part of healthy growth. But numerical growth alone cannot testify to health. Because we also all know that there's plenty of toxic crap out there that sells out on the supermarket, sh supermarket shelves, or goes viral on YouTube, or draws people to the Capitol building on January 6th, forcing us also to reckon with the truth in our evolutionary world that unhealthy things can grow too. So the question we face is how might we live into a process of evolving that stays in alignment with our values as individuals and as a community? How do we evolve in a way that lives into our vision of smashing idols rather than capitulating to them? How do we measure the health of our growth beyond only numbers and dollars? How do we identify if we're growing in the kind of understanding of love that Paul was speaking of? I don't claim to have the answers. But I hope that, as, that we will benefit in these weeks to come, in these months to come, and engaging this process, starting today, continuing next week at the retreat, and going forward, likely through the end of the year. And I think it's a conversation that is so much bigger than, you know, the, the small group of us gathered in this room that I'm eager to continue to be a part of. Just this weekend, Jeannie and I, um, we went to a hotel together in Walnut Creek so that we could be a part of a virtual conference. So we were doing it together while we were watching the conference virtually. Um, but this virtual conference is called Evolving Faith. And it was bringing, you were there? It was a beautiful experience, right? And in so many ways, I think living into all the things we've been talking about at Haven, you know, kind of throughout our own evolution and, and seeing this space where they so beautifully um, centered, primarily BIPOC, queer, trans voices, so beautifully, so powerfully. Um, a space where 
people are leaning more into the questions than the answers, a space where we're recognizing sometimes the things that have served us before aren't serving us. And we're, we're kind of all in this journey in the wilderness reality and what, what, where we find nutrients in the wilderness um, can be different for different people, but there's a, something beautiful about connection in, even in the wilderness and about journeying alongside one another, not to any end destination, but alongside each other in process toward whatever the divine might be, where the divine might lead us. It was lovely, it was powerful to be reminded that we're not just this weird little thing on our own in Berkeley, we're a part of something bigger that I believe the spirit is unfolding on a much, I mean, people all over the world were a part of this conference. A woman in India staying up, um, totally changed her sleep schedule <laughs> so that she could be there live for all the sessions. Um, it's beautiful to know that we're a part of something like that. And so my hope is that as we continue these conversations, we might together experience some of what Paul saw on that road to Damascus some of what i sensed god was encouraging me toward during the sabbatical i hope that this process of thinking of questioning of experimenting of listening to each other that we would hear the voice of the divine in the midst of us we will experience jesus speaking to us within the context of our evolving community and we'll be reminded both how far we've come already and invited into what we are becoming. I hope and pray that we will healthfully grow as a community evolving. Amen. <laughs>